Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. I'm Brandon. No Carl today. He's not feeling well. First off, I want to remind everybody, we got a Patreon going, patreon.com slash Network. We had a new episode drop a couple weeks ago, which is Character Lab. So we flip out Marty McFly for other characters and other franchises and kind of see where it goes along. And I thought that one was pretty fun. And then uh, we also rank athletes in a bracket and decide which the best athlete actor was. We also got a Biggs on Film for The Princess Bride, a commentary that Brandon and I did, and I'm dropping up today The Godfather Part 2 from Real Roulette. So lots of content on there in addition to the five episodes we had from last month. So check it out. So let's begin with some news. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was this artist, Tim Sale, passed away. He was a legend. Uh, He penned for DC. He also penned for Marvel. And I think the story that he's the most famous for, for sure, is The Long Halloween Jeff Loeb wrote it. A lot of the stories that he penned for were Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb, if you don't know, he wrote a a bunch in Marvel. And then I think before he wrote, I think he directed Commando and did a few Hollywood movies and then decided he wanted to write comic books. So he did that for a long time, made a name for himself in comics, and then wound up running Marvel's TV arm. So he was the one that oversaw the Marvel Netflix shows, for example, as well as a lot of the animated stuff that they've done. So The Long Halloween is basically a about Batman facing this mob like there's this hit on Halloween and he's trying to calm down the violence essentially and and bust his way as far as he can until they settle down and it's like Batman right after the first year of his career he's maybe in like the second year of his career and it's called the long Halloween because it started on Halloween and it keeps going for an entire year so it was 12 issues collected together he just can't seem to stop the violence it's really interesting they pulled elements of it from Dark Knight and the Batman. So it's got a good pedigree in the movies as well. He was famous for using a lot of charcoal drawings. Like if you see his style, it definitely sticks out. It's very cool looking. He also drew... Superman for all seasons, which was a story where it started with Superman in the summertime and it's right when he discovers he has powers and then a tornado hits Smallville and they kind of crib from that for Man of Steel a little bit, except for the whole ridiculous father dying thing (laughs) like that. That part was awful. That's not in that story. And then it cuts to spring and he goes to the Daily Planet and Lois Lane is kind of adversarial towards Superman at first, as well as Clark Kent. And it's a story where he collects Luther as his villain. Then it cuts to the winter and to the spring, which are more stories that they just give you like these little background things about Superman's character. It was a pretty good story. And then for Marvel, he was famous for doing the colors. So he did Daredevil Yellow, Spider Man Blue, Captain America White, and Hulk Gray. And those stories all involve mourning in some sense. It's a story that revolves around the main character. It's somebody they lost. Like with Daredevil, it's uh, it's Karen. Like I think he's like writing letters to her, even though she's died, to kind of get his feelings out. And he's dealing with another mob story involving the Kingpin. And then in Spider-Man Blue, it's showing a side of Gwen Stacy that you didn't really get in the comics. Like it balances her out as a more fully drawn character because in the original run with Gwen Stacy, you don't get a lot. Like her and Mary Jane were pretty much interchangeable. And over the years, Mary Jane actually got a backstory. I want to say in the 80s, she gets a backstory that explains why she is the way she is. And they kept building off of that. But Gwen never got any of that. It was just, you know, the 60s and early 70s. 70s so she was just interchangeable and in fact stanley would often change their lines in the script because he didn't want readers to guess which one peter would wind up with so he would literally change their lines (laughs) that's how interchangeable they were back in those days and then captain america white it involved cap kind of reckoning with bucky and they spent a long time on this book 
Like it took him a couple of years to actually put it out. And by the time it came out, the Winter Soldier arc happened and Bucky was back. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still a great story. And then Hulk Gray, which is examining the loss of the Hulk's life, really, because in the original comics, the first story for the Hulk, which was like six issues and it was like half issues. It was back when Marvel basically had to use DC for publishing and they gave them, I believe, 12 titles. Like they could only put out 12 books a month. Whatever the big story was at the time, they would just flood it, right? So if it was like romance comic books, they would flood it with romance. And if it was Western, they'd flood it with Western. And then they wound up almost going bankrupt. And so DC helped them out with that. But they were like, you can only have 12 books. This is when most of the staff had to get fired. And so Stan Lee winds up becoming editor in chief and writing. And so he's writing most of those books. And so they only had 12. So they had to be careful about what they did. And so for like two of the titles, they would do half issues where like you would go forward and you'd get half an issue and then you flip the comic book upside down and read it backwards and you could read another story. And so that was where the Hulk started and he was gray and he was gray and the printing didn't work out so great when they were putting it out and it would be blotchy. And so after the first story was up, Stanley didn't want to have that color in there anymore because it was blotchy. And so he said, well, what color that's close to that can you do? And they said green. So they switched it to green. But this predeposes like it, it plays with the idea that he was gray when he first started. Like it keeps that in canon, but kind of knocks out what was also in the original story, which was like Bruce Banner would turn to the Hulk when he was not angry, but at nighttime. Uh, so like during the day he would be Bruce Banner again. And then as the sun set, he would turn into the Hulk. That was also a thing that Stan Lee realized like, well, let's make it more of a Jekyll and Hyde thing where it's, it deals with psychology. Really good artist. This really unique style. I highly suggest checking out any of those books. I've read them all. They're fantastic. They're really, really good. Okay. So you had some news you wanted to bring up. Yeah. It's not one I really wanted to bring up, but it's something that's in our, uh, we talk about Oscar movies a lot. Oscar winning writer for Million Dollar Baby and Crash. That's it. Was arrested in Italy over the weekend for on charges of sexual assault and aggravated personal injury. This is Paul Feig, right? No, uh, Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis. Yes. No, definitely not Paul Feig. No. <laughs> Sorry, got mixed up. Woman showed up to an airport and claimed that he had raped her over the period of about five, six days. And I guess in Italy, they're a lot more progressive on uh, working on this sort of uh, issues. A lot more than the United States is because they took her right away and they took her to a clinic in the airport and then they took her to a hospital location for further examination. This is the fifth time. Uh, Four other women have accused him over the years of different issues this is one of those things where it's like why do you protect this guy you know like very clearly he's doing something illegal and immoral and it's very very obvious and yet these guys get to keep doing stuff because he's won a bunch of oscars like he wrote million dollar baby which won best picture and then he wrote and directed crash which won best picture and crash is widely regarded as one of the worst best pictures in history right and million dollar baby while everybody kind of ate it up at the time, I even liked it when I first saw it. Over time, it sits with you and you're like, ah, it's kind of a fucked up premise, actually. Did you see that movie? I haven't seen either of those movies. So it's a Clint Eastwood movie. I believe he starred in it and directed. And he's a boxing trainer and Hilary Swank comes to him, wants to box. He's refusing. He's kind of sexist, like women can't be boxers. And then he sees that she really, really wants it and sees potential in her. And so he starts coaching her and then she gets her shot at the title. And then she fucking winds up getting put in a hospital and is paralyzed. And so it's basically a story that's about assisted suicide. And it was just kind of the way that they position the the woman in there is just not a good look. When you look back at it, it's like you build them up like women can be these fighters. And then it's like, yeah, but then you'll have to watch your worst nightmare play out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're not at the point where we've got enough female sports movies to where you can have that kind of story and not have it ring out without ulterior motives involved, like a lot of the patriarchy, you know? And so, I don't know, it's it's a very problematic movie, I think, and seems to be a pretty problematic guy, too. So, five women coming forward, to me, that says a 
lot because I'm sure they'll get death threats and all yeah. of that kind of shit. Especially yeah. the fact that it's like a Clint Eastwood movie. A lot of conservative people like Clint Eastwood movies. I do too, by the way. Like a lot of his movies, not all of them. I feel like he has that type of fan base where you can expect a lot of problems, you know? Yeah. The other thing that came out in this story I read was uh, they're trying to spin it because he had left the Church of Scientology in 2009. And part of the uh, story was they're claiming that the the church is putting all these false accusations on him for leaving the church. And Okay, so my first question would be, are these women Scientologists? Like, are all five of them Scientologists? I well, Let's the, just entertain it for a second, because I don't think you can pay somebody enough money to do that accusation when they know they're going to face death threats. Because they are. They just are. That's the world we live in. Yeah. You don't even have to be accusing a famous person. You just have to accuse a person, and you're going to get death threats at this point. So, are they Scientologists? You know? Yeah. I doubt it. I This sounds like a bullshit thing. It sounds like he's trying to to blame something else my personal opinion is you know the woman had like showing up to the clinic at the airport that enough of this doesn't sound like some fabricated bullshit to me yeah and also so what she let somebody rape her so that she could say it was him you know what i mean like this just doesn't seem very likely to me no. This smacks of Kevin Spacey to me. The allegations against Kevin Spacey started coming out, and then he immediately tried to grab the headlines by coming out of the closet. And it just opened up a whole yeah, and like insinuating on top of it, like, if you come after me, you hate gay people kind of thing. And it's like, no, dude, like, wrong is wrong. It doesn't <laughs> matter your orientation. But I feel like a lot of people like that, they'll just grasp at straws to try and proclaim their innocence, and it just doesn't hold water. Well, let's move on. Let's let's get to some reviews. Let's get away from the news here. That sounds good. Yeah, it's a depressing block. So we'll leave that behind. The first thing I want to talk about is the offer. And so, of course, Carl didn't show up today. (laughs) (laughs) I think he literally said on the last episode he wasn't going to show up. I think he's got a headache. Like, he sounded like he didn't feel good, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was faking it. (laughs) Because he did not want to hear me talk about this. So, the offer is a Hollywood story on Paramount Plus about the making of The Godfather. But what it's actually about, more than the making of The Godfather, is it's really about this period in the 19th. 1970s in cinema where the counterculture got to make movies because the people at the top didn't really know how to make a hit anymore. They didn't know how to connect to the youth. So the they youth. Yeah, so they started letting directors have a lot more leeway and this shows you specifically how that happened so albert s ruddy produced this he also produced the godfather so this is based off of his book and i think it leads to a lot of cool things in it because you get to see that like this is about one of the most important periods of cinema with one of the most important studios during that period like paramount was fucking killing it in particular in the early 70s to the mid 70s like they were just fucking destroying it yeah and so this is really like focusing on that time so it it starts with albert s ruddy who is played by miles teller and miles teller i've never seen him do this before most of the things i see him in he's kind of the same guy but in this one he seems like a real new york guy and a guy that maybe could get in a tussle even though he doesn't do that in this he does seem like he could be that kind of guy miles teller transformed his body and his performance and actually like really works like there's a couple performances in it where it's like strange the first time you see it because they're playing so outside of what they normally do but then you realize like holy shit they're like really dialed into this and they're really killing it and i really enjoyed it and so albert s ruddy started out working for the Rand Corporation, like designing computers, and he was fucking fed up with it. He meets this comedian in a bar, and he's talking back and forth, and the guy's talking about show business and all the things that would make a great comedy. And he's saying, but the studios will never do those things because they always like want to do the safe bet. And <laughs> I like how things have changed. <laughs> Well, hold on. So like, so Ruddy is talking to him, decides, I want to get into show business. I'm sick of where I'm at. And I cannot stress enough that this is true. 
So he goes to this pitch meeting with the comedian and they pitch out some typical sitcom because they're playing by the rules that everybody does and they clearly don't like the sound of it. And then so they're about to get kicked out of the room and then Ruddy just launches into this thing that they were talking about while they were drunk, which is a horrible idea and everything you shouldn't do in a, in a comedy. But they were like, this would be really funny. And so he just launches the idea for Hogan's Heroes. So if you're not familiar with Hogan's <laughs> Heroes, this is a story about people in a concentration camp and then like the Nazis are kind of bumbling idiots and they're constantly putting one over the Nazis while they're in this concentration camp. It's fucking nuts, dude. It's absolutely nuts. That was a show. That was a yeah. very successful show. Yeah. So he makes this show for CBS. It just starts filming. It immediately becomes a hit. And then he finds Robert Evans, who is the head of Paramount, who was basically this failed actor. He was not a very good actor. He wound up hoodwinking himself up the ladder in Paramount until he was the head of it. And he was good at his job. Like, guy's legendary. This portrayal of Robert Evans is played by Matthew Good, who is in the Americans and some other things. But he fucking kills it, dude. Like, I'm a big Robert Evans fan because I like a lot of the movies that he put out. Like, the Godfather movies and The Longest Yard and Serpico and all of this kind of stuff. And then he's got this very particular cadence where he's just like, should I have done it? I don't know. Might not have been a good idea. Did I do it? Well, I really thought about it. Did I do it in the end? You know I did. Like, he kind of talks like that, and he's got this, like, nasally thing to his voice that I can't really do. And uh, this guy nails it. I was showing Carl clips at his house on YouTube of Robert Evans talking in the 70s because he's like, you get captivated by him. He's a real good bullshit artist. <laughs> and I found out who Robert Evans was because years ago I watched this documentary called The Kid Stays in the Picture, which involves him at one point escaping a mental institution. Like he was put in a mental institution and then he snuck his way out of it. Like he actually did this and he just lived this like crazy, amazing life and he narrates the entire thing. It was a couple years before he died. It's one of my all-time favorite documentaries. So this was already near and dear to my heart. But he runs into Robert Evans and basically convinces him to let him produce a movie. And Robert Evans realizes this guy has no experience whatsoever, but also he sees himself in him a little bit. And, you know, Ruddy also uses the story of Robert Evans to be like, you should give me this job because you were in the same position. <laughs> so he gets the job. He gets his secretary played by... Uh, Juno Temple named Betty McCarty. And Betty McCarty winds up being a really famous agent in the 70s, like in Hollywood circles, like a legendary agent. But at the time, she's just like a secretary who basically acted as a co-producer, like she went above and beyond and everything. And so she hitches her wagon to Ruddy because she can see he needs help. Right away, Ruddy produces this movie. He's all cocksure of himself and it fucking bombs and it bombs hard, dude. Like it loses <laughs> all the money, you know. And so he then develops The Godfather. And they show Mario Puzo is like, he's struggling as a writer and his wife is just like, nobody wants to read these books you're putting in. Find something compelling. And then they see a mobster across the street, like shake up somebody. And she's like, now that is compelling. And he's just like, these guys are the scum of the earth. They're awful. And she's like, yes, you should write about them. So he decides like, if I'm going to write about these people, I'm going to make them human beings. So he puts out the Godfather. Ruddy finds out about this, like reads the book. Nobody has read the book yet. It's just in Paramount's book arm of the company and he's like this is great he doesn't know what he's doing he doesn't know that you're supposed to then hire a screenwriter to translate it to a script so he hires mario puzo to write the script <laughs> and everybody is horrified at this especially because he just delivered a bomb i should add that at the top of the ladder there's this guy charles bludorn who was the head of gulf and western that owned paramount and he's played by Bern Gorman, and also really fascinating character. I think he's German. I'm not 100%. He might somewhere in that region of Europe, for sure. They're just like, what is he doing? And he's like yelling at Robert Evans constantly. But Robert Evans believes in this guy. He's like, you know, you missed. Like, this one's got to be a hit, though, you know. And so he's trying to give him guidance. And, and he's suggesting, well, why don't you get the guy who wrote Patton, which is Francis Ford Coppola? Everybody else is like, no, 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 no. Coppola's in movie jail because he directed this movie that also lost all of the money right before the godfather <laughs> and he owes paramount money and he doesn't want to do it he does not want to go at this point everything that coppola had done was self-financed and uh i should add coppola is played by dan fogler who's in the goldbergs he's in the 
Fantastic Beasts, blah, blah, blah. Like, he's he's in all of that stuff. He's a comedian, but he does a really good job as Coppola. He's very standoffish at first. He reads the book, and then he suddenly realizes, like, oh, the metaphor here is capitalism. So he's like, I'm going to approach this like it's a capitalistic story. And then he gets really into it, but he's waiting for it to get all fucked up because he's just like, the studio's going to meddle. They're not going to give me the people I want. And Ruddy keeps telling him, I guarantee you will get the people you want, you know? And meanwhile, you get all these interactions, like Mario Puzo comes to L.A., to to write this script and he winds up getting in a restaurant where Frank Sinatra is sitting a couple tables later and now the book's hitting and it's a number one book but like Sinatra is pissed and Puzo is under the impression that like Sinatra is going to play the character that's based off of him Johnny Fontaine okay but like Frank Sinatra is fucking pissed off because it portrays him as mobbed up, which, by the way, Sinatra totally was mobbed up. Like, it's not (laughs) even a question now, but he didn't want everybody to know it, you know? So he's fucking mad. Puzo comes over to the table to introduce himself, be nice, and Sinatra, like, gets in his face and starts screaming at him. Puzo grabs a fork to stab his eye with it, and he gets, like, held back. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, there's this whole mob plot going on because this guy, Joe Colombo, he was running the... uh, I'm trying to remember what they call it. It's like the Italian defamation league, I think, but he was actually a mobster and he hears that they're making the script about the mob, but it's a big budget movie. Like to this point, every single mob script was like a genre thing. So like, you know, some of them were big, but like they were big in the same way that like, a horror movie could get big, right? Like, it's not going to have a bunch of prestige. You know, it's just like a certain type of people goes to it. But this is like the studio fully backing this movie. So, like, he is horrified by this, and he absolutely doesn't want it to happen. And so you deal with the intrigue going on within that as well. And essentially what it comes down to is they don't want the word mafia in the movie. So they never use the term mafia and Godfather. I think the book only uses it once. Like, they don't say Cosa Nostra. They don't say mafia. They say the family, right? families yeah. the five families the tagelia family the, like on and on they they just substitute out the word not a problem ruddy is now constantly in this position where he's like trying to keep coppola happy and get the actors he wants he wants pacino he wants brando everybody balks at brando because they're like brando's a pain in the ass and he won't do it then he decides to do it and they're like this is a bad idea he's a pain in the ass but they do a screen test with him in secret I mean, all of this, really, everything I'm telling you, this all really happened, too. I know that there's things that they probably fictionalize, like probably the fork, like stabbing Sinatra or whatever. That probably didn't happen necessarily, but all this other stuff actually happened. The money guy is played by Colin Hanks, and he is a composite character. He's basically everybody who didn't want The Godfather to happen, so he's kind of a douche, right? And by the way, good job on Colin Hanks, like totally playing against type, because at this point, everything I'd seen him in, he was a lot like his dad's early career, where it's just like, he's a really nice guy. The exception of being a serial killer in Dexter, I was going to say, yeah. That's that's... the one exception, but um, it's also playing on the fact that like... He's playing against type, right? But this is like believable the way he's playing against type in this. They show the screen test for the head of Gulf and Western and for Evans and they love it, right? Because it's Brando. And the, the actor does not do Brando a lot in this, but he does it somewhat. And when he does it, he fucking nails it. Like he looks like 70s Brando. He sounds like 70s Brando. Like he really, really kills it. My mom was watching it. She was just like, wow, like that actor really, really portrayed Brando well. So then Coppola also wants Pacino. And this is very controversial because Pacino has not been in a movie at this point. He's just an actor and he's very short. And so all these movie heads are aware of him, but they don't want him in studios because they think he's going to be dwarfed by the actresses. And so they're just like, none of the men will be able to connect to Pacino. And so Evans is totally against this. And what's really interesting about this is like, and I include Colin Hanks's character when I say this, all these major parts, they're like pushing for a thing to make the film better. But one of them is constantly standing off and saying, no, 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 no. And then it takes some combination of the other ones to convince them. Like this is very much a show about how all of these people pull it together to make this masterpiece. It's not just Coppola's vision. It's not just Puto's writing. It's not Ruddy doing whatever it takes to get the thing made, including dealing with the mob. It's none of these things. It's all of them are important. Even the owner of Gulf and Western is 
used to like run around Robert Evans at certain point to get Pacino in place. You know, like all of them are stabbed in the back at some point and all of them ultimately pulled together to get this turned up. And what's really interesting. So when I was saying earlier about how this is about the most important studio at the time during one of the most important times in cinema, like I say that because, for example, the movie that's released right before The Godfather is Love Story, which is the best selling movie of all time when it comes out. And then The Godfather is the best-selling movie of all time and just fucking blows that away, you know? And then they make the sequel. And that sequel is the only sequel to win Best Picture. Like, you could kind of make a case for Silence of the Lambs because it's the second in the series and Manhunter was the first, but it wasn't actually connected to Manhunter. So it's not really a sequel, if that makes sense. That's why they go back and redo it with Red Dragon. It's just a really interesting... At the end of it, there is some stuff that they compress for time that doesn't quite work out. For example, in the last episode, they're immediately thinking about the sequel. And I'm like, no, that didn't happen. Studios didn't think that way in those days. Like, they weren't thinking, like, the next picture in line. Unless you were, like, Universal Monsters. They just weren't doing that, you know? The day that they win the Oscar, they're already starting on Godfather 2. Now, I know I've heard Coppola say... It took them about a year to convince him to do the sequel. He was kept telling them, get Martin Scorsese to do it. Like Evans convinced him, it's you. There will be no interference. You get a blank check. You get to do what you want. And Evans produced that one because he was just like the head of the studio. Ruddy was worried that like the Godfather would bomb. And so he was trying to like get another script before that couldn't find one. So he writes this football script like Evans won't look at it, won't look at it, won't look at it. Finally, he gets Burt Reynolds on board for it. It's the longest yard, right? (laughs) And like he really believes in the longest yard and he's afraid if he does Godfather 2 that the longest yard is going to go away. But Evans just won't even consider it. And so finally, Evans decides he wants to like self-produce the movies in addition to being the studio head. And because he's on such a hot streak, they agree to it. And then like this lasts for a few years and then he goes down as a head of Paramount, like steps down because he has a nervous breakdown and goes to a mental institution. Not in the show, just I happen to know that and then he just produced pretty much to the end of his life after that was successful like didn't have like gigantic hits towards the end but had hits that consistently made money like he definitely had a touch so ruddy like trades him basically like i will renounce all my rights to the godfather to to you if you green light the longest yard and so of course it works out well for everybody, you know, but it's a really good Hollywood story. There's a ton of threads. I'm not even talking about it. Uh, the guy who plays Al Pacino in it is uh, Anthony Ippolito. He fucking kills it, dude. He is like a dead ringer for Pacino in The Godfather. He's doing the perfect Pacino voice. And I don't mean the voice we do now. Where we're like, she had a great ass. Like not that Pacino, like 70s Pacino. Which yeah, that's is way different. Way different. And he actually like he's into that and nails it. And they don't show a bunch of scenes from the movie. They will occasionally be filming parts of the movie and they'll use that to parallel other scenes. But like you could interchange The Godfather with just about any other movie at that time. And it would be essentially the same story. Like this is how you get shit made and all the moving parts and how people collide against each other. But then like they wind up helping each other. It's like a lot of ingredients in the kitchen, you know. And so I really recommend it. It's my favorite show of this year. 10 episodes, Paramount Plus. Like, it's worth paying for Paramount Plus just to watch the offer. In addition, there's a lot of Star Trek if you're into that kind of thing. I think there's some Twilight Zone on there with Jordan Peele as well. That in particular, I would check out. Too. And it's South so Park. good. Uh, they have the South Park the movies. Specials. Yeah, they have like the last two specials, including the streaming wars, which I never actually talked about on the show, but I did watch. They do not have the series. The series is on HBO Max. Right. The streaming wars movie (laughs) is about, I'm not going to go into the whole plot, but these kids are building little boats. And so they're having the streaming thing and everybody's paying them for it. And what they're actually doing is they're taught, like it's a metaphor for the fact that they are selling South Park to HBO Max and they're selling it to Paramount Plus. (laughs) And people are like, why don't you just build them for one network? And they're like, why does it matter? (laughs) You know, like we're going to do what's best for us. So um, that it's essentially a metaphor for that. But I would, I would check out Paramount Plus for that. So Spiderhead is a movie that's on Netflix right now that dropped this week. Chris Hemsworth is playing a psychiatrist who is testing out these drugs on all of these inmates. And one of the inmates is played by Miles Teller, who's playing typical Miles Teller. You know, <laughs> it is 
a bit of a throwback to 20 years ago, I'll say, where it's like, you know that the psychiatrist is up to no good, you know? And when I say psychiatrist, he also owns this company. So he's kind of a stand-in for any of the tech giants who are fucking douches, you know, which are like every tech giant, right? Essentially, he is like fucking with their psychology and he's doing these drugs. For example, Miles Teller comes in and he sits in, in this room with this woman across from him and they have to rate each other one through ten. And so he's like seven and a half and she's like five and he's like five and she's like well i'm brutally honest that's how i am and he's like actually i changed my answer she's an eight and then he like turns on this drug like he's got a phone that kind of like they can dial up certain drugs that they have in this pack on their back and he turns it up and then all of a sudden they're like really attracted to each other and they just start fucking in the middle of the room okay (laughs) he puts him in a room with this older way less attractive lady and she clearly likes him and he wants nothing to do with it and he's nervous because he can see where this is gonna go and then they wind up fucking right but then he's also got this drug where people just get super violent and attacking things and like just freaking out he's testing this whole manner of drugs that do different things to the psyche and so what this movie basically boils down to is don't trust pharmaceutical companies because they're fucking with all the people in the prison there's a lot of revelations that i don't want to spoil in case anybody wants to watch it and chris hemsworth fucking kills it in this movie he's very believable as this douchey tech guy who's like getting into people's heads who also has a drug problem and he's super into like soft rock from the 70s and 80s like a lot of yacht rock and <laughs> And so, like, the movie opens with the logical song, which really does fit this movie. If you, like, think about the lyrics, it, it fits a lot of stuff that's happening in it. And it'll constantly go to just playing all this off rock. Like, we get some Michael McDonald in there, <laughs> just, like, a lot of stuff like that. I would say it's fun. It's not the best movie out there. It's not the worst. It's good for a Netflix movie. I'll say that. Like, <laughs> not quite on the level of Red Notice for me. I really like it. I would check it out if you just want, like, a time waster and it's 90 minutes it breezes by short ass movie no but a proper length movie you know what i mean <laughs> i think 90 minutes to 215 is a proper movie as long as it's done well and i even think three hours can be a proper movie depends on what we're talking three hours right god three hours of end game i could watch three hours of me too in fact i watched that two days ago just <laughs> coincidentally i was home alone and just decided to watch it godfather great three hour movies yep. justice league holy fuck that's long dude four hours no movie should be four hours i'm throwing down the gauntlet on that one no movie anyway last movie i got to review is lightyear we went to the theater for that because there was nothing i wanted to remotely see that i hadn't seen in the theaters and so i was like eh, why not lightyear so we go to it and we sit down there's a couple of old people behind us it's like two old guys and two old women all during the trailer the old guys are just talking about fucking ham radios and all this like boring shit but i've seen all the trailers so I'm like half listening to them. And I'm like, uh, I wish they would shut up. And then they have Chris Evans introduce the movie with uh, Kiki Palmer. And then one of the old ladies goes, you're not Tim Allen. <laughs> she, had, she had no idea that like Tim Allen wasn't in this movie. She just thought they got it wrong for the commercial. Now, these two old ladies talked during the entire movie, but it was fantastic. I'm just going to tell you right now. I rated this movie on Letterboxd as a three out of five stars. It probably would have been two and a half, but it slides up half a star because these old ladies were so, the so amazing, dude. Something scary happened. You could feel the old lady jump and she go, oh, like every time, like utterly surprised <laughs> at the most obvious things. You could hear their id on display. Everything that happened mm. came out of their mouth. There was one part where one of the characters is trying to jump in space mm. to an airlock and she misses it. And then she like grabs a thing under the ship. And then this cat character, which I'll get back to in a second, starts to float off into space and she goes oh that's horrible like it's just and so amanda and i agreed after we walked out of the movie because we kept every time they would say something we'd look at each other and just like smile really big and laugh we decided that the next movie we go to we're gonna bring two ladies from the retirement home to sit behind us because wow it was fantastic i can't even imagine what it would have sounded like if they'd gone to that cronenberg movie with us last week oh my god (laughs) 
So Lightyear, this is a movie that people are having a hard time wrapping their head around what it is. And they actually do a really good job of explaining it in the beginning of the movie. And this is how they should have started all their ad campaign. It's like black type. And it says, in 1995, Andy got a spaceman toy. This is the movie that toy is based off of. That's it, right? You totally oh, understand wow. it. Like, it's absolutely succinct. Why they didn't put that in the advertising, I don't know. Like, I wrap my head around what it was supposed to be immediately. But so many people were just like, I don't understand what this is. <laughs> so what this is, is it is a sci-fi movie and it is done in the style of the 80s and 90s, I would say. Down to the point of where when people are scanning things, they have red lasers that make almost like a square netish kind of thing when they're scanning. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And the sci-fi tropes that they use are very 80s and 90s. So it's like, if you could put yourself in that frame, it absolutely makes sense and it, it works as one of those styles of movie. Buzz goes to this planet. The space rangers are, are bringing all these colonists to the planet to see if they can settle there. And for various reasons, they cannot settle there. And so... Buzz goes to take off as these things are chasing him and he refuses help from other people around him. He doesn't know how to accept help from rookies, from people who don't know what they're doing, from computers that are trying to suggest things to him. Like he just tunes them all out with the exception of his partner and he tries to fly it back out into space and they hit a mountaintop and then they wind up crashing and everybody's okay but they're stuck on the planet i'm just going to give away one little plot thing that's not in the advertising but i will not give away the big plot reveal at the end they have to find this other energy source to get off the planet and so he keeps testing it because they have to get to light speed but every time he goes to test it out and comes back it's been like five years ten years like every single time and so he's watching everybody get older and people are starting to settle into the planet and actually like making a life there and he can't accept it because he feels like he needs to accomplish his mission and he's let everybody down and so this movie is really about him reckoning with sometimes you make mistakes you need to learn to live with them but then also you need to listen to other people you know and he was really bad at listening to other people he was just obsessed with his own failure it's, it's pretty well done like there's those messages for the kids but it does truly play like a movie for adults that the family can go to like a la black hole maybe for disney there is elements of uh the 90s version of um what's the one with like danger will robinson danger oh lost in space yeah, there's elements of the 90s version of Lost in Space in it as well. There's a big reveal with Emperor Zurg at the end, which, like, wasn't surprising to me. This is all, like, well-trod tropes. They're not trying to break the wheel on anything. But I had kind of narrowed it down to two possibilities, and I thought possibility A was more likely, and it wound up being B. So uh, it makes more sense when you take in what the movie is that it was option B, and I'll just leave it at that. But all in all, I would say it's fine. And this is where I'm going to have you. I know you have to sustain from Lightyear, but I want you to rate all the Toy Story movies, and then I will rate all the Toy Story movies. All right. So let's start with your first favorite and why. So you got one, two, three, and four. This should be easy for you. For the Toy Story movies? Yeah. My favorite is Toy Story 3. Mine too. Yeah, I like the prison drama of it. And I also like that it's talking about being older and facing the inevitable looming specter of death, right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of crazy it was a kid's movie. And it was yeah. one. It was up for Best Picture as well. Yeah, that and it also sort of had the Scarface thing going on. Oh yeah, hundred percent with the <laughs> with the fucking symbol monkey that has like bloodshot eyes. One, two, and four. What's your second favorite? Second favorite, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with the OG. Me too. Yeah. I mean, they did a lot of work in that movie, like setting up the rules and universe, and but it's a fun movie. It's funny of the four, it's the one I'm the least likely to willingly watch at this point because I've seen it so many times. I saw it when I was in high school, and then occasionally every couple of years something would happen where I'd see it and then I had kids who watched the shit out of it because it was always on TV like the first yeah. one in particular was always on TV so I've seen it so many times I really feel like I don't want to watch it again although if it was on I'd totally watch it and be fine with it I'm sure I also saw it in theaters when they put it back out in 3D and that was pretty fun maybe of all of them it's got the tightest story yeah. it's just not necessarily my favorite but yeah I would I would pick it number two looking at it objectively okay what's your third favorite you got two and four left as do I two yeah I'm going me too. two yeah so we are simpatico in this yeah and i 
really didn't like Toy Story 4. This is where we split. I actually really like Toy Story 4. I just hold that franchise in high esteem. I thought the Key and Peele of it was great. Key and Peele was great. I really liked the storyline with, is it Bo Peep? Played by Annie Potts. Yeah, I loved Bo Peep in that. I loved that whole storyline and the the time where like your usefulness has kind of come to an end. So what are you going to do? Like, are you going to sit around and be trash? Or are you going to like reinvent your life? Like, I really like that. It, it spoke to me. Like, a lot of the themes that are in there are, are kind of why I rate them, you know? I do like that theme of Toy Story 4, so I enjoyed it, which I know you did not. That was a contentious episode of pop culture <laughs> consumption that we had there. <laughs> yeah, what you got anything to say about Toy Story 2, your, your third favorite? It never really grabbed me as much as I wanted. I mean, I kind of liked the uh, finding more about Jesse and the gang, the rest of the prospectors. And I really like the little old toy cleaner guy. Played by Newman. <laughs> no, not, not Al. The little old guy that does the restoration. Oh, the guy who's doing the restoration, not the guy who's selling it. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought that was really cute. I really liked the whole storyline with Buzz being super annoyed at the other Buzzes because they believe that they're actually space rangers. And it like shows that like Buzz has moved past that and embraced reality. And it makes me laugh because nothing annoys me more a person than things I hated about myself when I was younger. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, I thought it spoke to that quite a bit. Yeah. So I would put Lightyear above Toy Story 4 in my rankings. So I would say it's like the fourth best Toy Story thing, but I still enjoy it, man. I think it's worth going to the theater and checking out. Like it's a fun night one way or the other, you know? Yeah. I'll probably check it out once it hits uh, the plus. The plus. So last thing here, I got a deep dive. Been a while since I did a deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. It is the 50th anniversary of Ghost Rider in the comics right now. And so I did a deep dive on Ghost Rider. Now, are you familiar with the character of Ghost Rider? Yeah, Nick Cage, Flaming Head. I'm always curious, like, what do you know about this character outside of the movies? Not much. Not much? Do you know the origin of the character or anything like that? Nope. Okay, so it's basically like a guy who mm -hmm. sold his soul to the devil, right? Well, here. I'll get into it. So I was looking it up and the first thing I looked up was Ghost Rider on Wikipedia and it says that he was a stunt motorcyclist named Johnny Blaze. He gives his soul to Satan to save his father, but it wasn't really Satan. It was Mephisto. That's right. It was Mephisto. It was Mephisto the whole time <laughs> pretending to be Satan. Satan? Mephisto watch. At night, when he's in the presence of evil, his flesh is consumed by hellfire and his head becomes a flaming skull. He rides around on a flaming motorcycle and can blast hellfire from his skeletal hands, right? So, like, the comic, he always looked cool, but it was really dumb when you took any time to think about it because it's this dude with a flaming head and chains driving around on a motorcycle. It was basically like somebody... I mean, it looked metal as fuck. But... That's what I'm saying, is that somebody was, like, stoned as fuck and looking at, like, a stoner's van and was just like, yeah, man, that should be a comic book i'll write it you know? <laughs> uh, the comic was initially prepared to be sold off for movie rights in 1992 it wasn't sold until 1997 david s goyer prepped the script and john voigt was brought in as a producer the production was scheduled to start in 2001 with johnny depp in the lead depp wound up dropping out and avia rod approached eric banna to play the role that's a crazy what if right <laughs> i don't know why everybody was so up on eric banna before he had really done much you know he was just a stand-up comedian in australia and then everybody's like we need eric bannon everything and i don't remember him much of anything before star trek um okay so played hulk obviously uh he was in munich for Steven Spielberg. Yeah. But this is all like in the period where everybody's like, we need Banna, we need Banna. But like, he hadn't done anything. So I don't get it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so Avia Rod instead decided to use him as Hulk. Steven Norrington was brought in as a director and Nick Cage reached out to him to play the part. Nick Cage wanted to play Ghost Rider. So the director wound up leaving before pre-production and Cage left with him. In 2002, Spider-Man burned up the box office and Columbia Pictures bought the property. They they would start over and rewrite the script twice. The first rewrite was done by Shane Salareno. 
Okay. So Sal Loreno became a go-to guy for writing films like Armageddon and the 2000 remake of Shaft. He would go on to write the reboot of Star Trek, Eric Bana, right? Yep. <laughs> and the upcoming Avatar sequels. But just before rewriting Ghost Rider, he wrote Alien vs. Predator for Paul W.S. Anderson. That's, the- a, that's a mixed bag of stuff in there. Isn't it, dude? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's some good, but there's some not so good in there. Yeah, the whole Anderson of it all, the lesser Anderson. <laughs> PWSA in 2002 put out Resident Evil onto the screen. This is a deep dive. It's going to go places. This is rabbit holes specifically. Resident Evil was written by Anderson for free on spec because the company that had the rights, Constantine Film, had already spent their script budget on several failed attempts, including one with George A. Romero. Anderson wound up producing it and its sequels under his company, Impact Pictures. This company had been roundly criticized for the Resident Evil movies for not being safe. Over the course of the franchise one stuntman was killed by a humvee sliding off a rotating platform a stunt woman lost most of her arm and was paralyzed when hit by a camera crane while doing a stunt in freezing rainy conditions she was not given proper equipment and the stunt's timing had been changed without her knowledge 12 extras were hospitalized on the films when falling from a collapsing high-wheeled platform his company tried to use shell companies to avoid liability paul ws anderson is a fucking douche like i knew i didn't like his movies but then that's pretty fucked. Can you imagine losing your life or being paralyzed or losing your arm or like falling off this giant platform for a fucking Resident Evil movie? Honestly. Like it's bad enough that that shit happens already, but look at what it's happening for, man. This is like shit that Spike TV would play at like two in the afternoon, you know? Uh, often when there are stunt performers killed or hurt, a movie will have to shut down production. This was the case for one film that had director H.B. Haliki following up his own box office monster. The biggest stunt was filmed at the beginning of the shoot. A water tower was supposed to fall in the scene. Unfortunately, one of the tower's support cables snapped. It caused a telephone pole to fall and kill the director. The film was never made, but the original Gone in 60 Seconds was then remade with Nick Cage. It comes back around. (laughs) Nick Cage would rejoin Ghost Rider, and when it eventually was released, it made $229 million off of a $110 million budget. Its sequel got greenlit, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which also raked in $132 million off of a $59 million budget. A third installment wasn't greenlit because Nick Cage said he was done with it. I had movies like The Sorcerer's Apprentice and Ghost Rider and Drive Angry, three in a row that didn't work out. There was this marginalization that happened while I was much more interested in philosophy and meditating. So those two things <laughs> happened at once. It led me to a life of contemplation. What? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That, that is so Nick, a Nick Cage statement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, well, I had some movies that didn't work out and I started meditating. Like, what? <laughs> oh, I love Nick Cage. Me too. Don't ever change. The rights reverted back to Marvel. They featured the Robbie Rees version and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. was knocked out of canon and there are no known plans to put him back in. However... In August 2021, Marvel paid for an LLC of Richmond Street Productions to make a streaming series. Richmond Street runs along Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, where the Midnight Suns have a base in the comics. So the Midnight Suns is a group Doctor Strange put together as a first line of defense against demons. The members consist of both the Daniel Ketch version of Ghost Rider, as well as the Johnny Blaze version. There's also Blade, Morbius, and the Darkhold Redeemers. So that's the end of my deep dive there we went some places there has been a lot of talk that there will be a midnight sun show so do you think this is more likely now that you hear this tenuous connection to it right we do know we're getting blade right yeah we do know that they own ghost rider if they want to use ghost rider they've put morbius out twice yep they've got dr strange and they seem very interested in having dr strange be the tony stark of this universe so having him put together a group makes sense right and then the dark hold redeemers one of the members is the black knight who is Jon Snow in fucking The Eternals, you know, Kit Harrington. So it's definitely in place for a Midnight Suns thing. We could see Ghost Rider coming up. What do you think? One to ten, what do you place it at its chances? I think they're really trying to make it happen. I mean, they're pulling some deep, deep characters trying to get Sony-verse 
happening, but uh, Morbius was a huge step in the wrong direction for that. Oh, for Sony? Yeah. Right. But like Sony owns Morbius, so he wouldn't be a part of this, I'm sure. I doubt more Marvel wants anything to do with Jared Leto, you know? No, 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 no. They're, they're like, oh, we saw what you did with DC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can stay over at sony yeah we also saw what you did in sony <laughs> no thank you okay so you're skirting the question here one to ten how likely that it'll ever show on a screen i think everybody's idea is that it'll be a streaming service because oh as far as a yeah that production show? company that they came up with was designed for a streaming service or a streaming show which is more likely but i'm still giving it like a three i'm giving it an eight you're it's, that it's, you think it's going to happen? That tenuous connection is not what made me think it. It's everything else. It's that the characters are lined up here. It seems like they're putting a lot of characters that are on a lot of different teams together. And so I think we're going to get teams. I'm going to go a step further because I was thinking about this. Kevin Feige has said recently i think a couple days ago actually that they have dropped a lot of hints as to where the overall story for phases four through six is going already and he said it'll be more obvious in upcoming things so one of those things i was really thinking about is the fact that they keep dropping all of these different people from different teams you've got young avengers like a whole bunch of them are coming together if you really want to get crazy about it there's pet avengers too but i'm not going to put much into that you have a bunch of the people from the midnight suns coming together you have the thunderbolts coming together you have at least one member of the fantastic four now we've got mutants we've seen in humans now so there's a lot of different groups i think this is going to the beyonder are you, are you familiar with the beyonder no so this was the first marvel storyline where they just brought a shitload of heroes together for like a world-breaking event and essentially they are all these heroes and villains are sent to this planet where they have to battle each other for the beyonder to decide like who's going to survive and who's not and like the fate of the universe rides on their hands you know and so it was this really big story it's also the story where spider-man's costume gets ripped and then he reaches into a slot to get another costume and it's a black costume and he is not aware that that is venom and it will take them about eight months of storyline before they actually reveal that it's a symbiote so like that comes out of the beyonder storyline but i think you have all of these elements in play where we get some version of that story this is the first thing i've been really thinking where it's like that might be where they're heading because a a lot of people are looking at the multiverse and i think that's a big part of phase four but i think what that also is is marvel's way of being able to introduce heroes quickly without doing a bunch of story and once again to pick and choose who they want from fox to have come into the mcu right like they have that now they want hugh jackman back and he wants to come back you got him for wolverine already you know you want professor x to come back again you got it you know what i mean like they can grab anybody they want now from anything so i think they're going to the beyonder plot but we'll see and that was the secret war storyline that i'm talking about all right take it easy Please rate and review our show. Sign up for an Anchor account. You can leave voice messages through a link in the description of the podcast or you can answer our poll questions. Reach out to us through Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs. Email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient, Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Lab.